You're listening to KZOM, Oleander Public Radio. Astounding Stories 20, August 1931, by Harl Vincent. The Moonweed, Part 2. It was dusk when they roared in through the gate at the Rockland County Airport and pulled up at the hangar office. Van rushed in, shouting for Bill Peterson, and Bart followed. A slender, fair-haired youth in rumpled flying togs greeted them. "'Bill, my friend Bart Madison,' Van blurted, without pausing for breath. "'Listen, we've got to have a plane right away. Got one with a radio?' "'Yes, but what's all the rush? Where are you going?' Albany, right away. Make it snappy, will you? Sure, but what's it all about? Young Peterson was leading them to the field where a sleek monoplane was in waiting as if they had ordered it. Warm her up, Joe, he called to the mechanic. Listen, Bill, I never lied to you, did I? Van asked when they were seated in the plane's cabin. Not that I know of, but sometimes I've thought you were lying until I saw with my own eyes the things you had told me about. What is it this time? Death and destruction, coming down out of the Ramapos. We've got to warn the country. Plants, Bill, squirmy, red plants with long feelers that can twist around a man and devour him. Half animal they are, and the feelers break loose and crawl by themselves, multiplying like nothing you ever saw, millions of them in an hour. What? Peterson stared incredulously as his motor roared into life. Then he gave his attention to the business of taking off. He jerked the thumb of his free hand toward the radio. Van's expert fingers manipulated the switches and dials of the portable apparatus, and its vacuum tubes glowed into life. 2BXX calling 2TIM, he droned into the microphone. Who's that? Bart asked. The drone of the motor was barely audible in the closed cabin and did not interfere. The Times, trying to get Johnny Forbes. If anyone can get this thing across, he can. Wait a minute, here they are. He closed his eyes as he listened to the murmuring voice in the headphones. Then he was talking rapidly, forcefully, and the young flyer gazed with owlish solemnity at Bart as they listened to his conversation. It was plain that Bill was but half inclined to believe, though impressed by the earnestness and evident apprehension displayed by his two passengers. Yes, to be XX. Van was saying. Connect me with Johnny Forbes, please. In a hurry. Yes. Hello, Johnny. It's Van. Carl Vanderventer, you know. Yes. Got a scoop for you. But first, I want you to get it in the broadcasts. Get me? It's about a man-eating plant that's starting to overrun the country. No. Listen now. I'm not dreaming. Listen. The frantic scientist rambled on and on about the seed from the moon, the red death that was creeping down from the mountains, the horror of the calamity as he and Bart had visioned it. Then, with a sudden note of despair, his voice trailed off into nothingness, and he turned a drawn white face to his two friends. "'Laughed at me. Hung up on me,' he groaned. "'Good God! We've got to do something. Quick!' "'Be in Albany in an hour,' the pilot suggested. "'What you going to do there?' He believed now. His expression of horror showed it. "'See the governor. But, man, it's an hour wasted. We must stir up the country, uh, get the word to Washington, everywhere. It might be possible to fight the thing some way if we can mobilize state and national resources quickly enough. Bill? Bart? What can we do?' 
The plane sped on through the night, under control of her gyropilot, as the three men racked their brains for a solution of the problem. If a hard-boiled newspaper man would not believe the story, who could? "'I've got it!' Bart shouted suddenly. "'Can either of you pound a key? Code, I mean?' "'Sure, I can. Then what?' Peterson returned. "'Fake an S.O.S. Don't you see? All broadcasting has to stop, and every ship at sea, every airliner in this part of the country will be listening, standing by. Give them the story in code. Let them think we're in a ship from the moon, captured by Lunarians who are here to destroy the world with this weed of theirs, anything. Make it as weird as possible. Most everyone will think it's a hoax, but there are ten thousand kids, amateurs, who'll be listening in. Somebody'll believe it. And believe me, there'll be some investigating in the neighborhood of the growth in no time. By George, I believe that'll do it, Van exclaimed. And the broadcasters listen in for an S.O.S. themselves. Got to, you know, so they know when to start up again. Some smart announcer will tell the story, maybe even believe it. The trick will work, sure as shooting. The pilot glanced at his instruments and saw that the automatic gyro apparatus was functioning properly. Then he moved over to the radio and threw the switch that put the key in circuit instead of the microphone. Rapidly, he ticked off three dots, three dashes, and again three dots that spelled the dread danger signal of the air. Over and over he repeated the signal, and then he listened for results. "'It worked,' he gloated after a moment. "'They're all signing off, the broadcasters. The Navy Yard in Brooklyn gives me the go-ahead.' He pounded out the absurd message with swift fingers, pausing occasionally to ask a pertinent question of Van or Bart. At Van's request, he added a warning to all residents of New York State west of the Hudson River and of northern New Jersey to flee their homes without delay. He even asked that the message be relayed to the governors of the two states, and that Governor Perkins of New York be advised that they were on their way to Albany to discuss the situation. But he balked at the story of the Lunarians, telling instead the equally strange truth regarding the origin of the deadly growth, and adding the names of Van and Bart to lend authenticity to the tale. Then he signed off and switched the radio receiver to the loudspeaker before returning to the pilot's seat. Bart tuned in on the various broadcasters as they resumed their programs, finally settling on W.O.R. Newark, whose announcer was reading the strange message to his radio public with appropriate comment. A crime and an outrage, he called it, an affront to the industry and to the public. An insult to the government of the United States. But wait! A telephone call had just been received at the station from the village of Slotesburg. A reputable citizen of that town had reported the red growth at the edge of the state road, huge red earthworms wriggling across the concrete. Another call, and another. The announcer's voice was rising hysterically. It did work, Bart! Van exulted. Now the hell starts popping. Governor Perkins met them in person when they arrived at the municipal airport in Albany. A great crowd had gathered in the shadows outside in the brilliance of the floodlights, and a police escort rushed them to the governor's private car. Here's where you go to the Bastille for socking that cop, Van observed. His spirits had risen appreciably since that successful S.O.S. call. But the governor was in a serious mood as they made their way toward the executive mansion through the milling crowds that lined the hilly streets of the capital city of New York State. 
proofs had not been lacking of the truth of Bill Peterson's radio warning. Already the spreading Red Death had covered a circle some eight miles in diameter, covering farmlands and destroying the crops, blocking the roads and trapping many on the streets and in their homes and in nearby towns. More than a hundred had lost their lives, and thousands were fleeing the threatened area. The country was in an uproar. "'Gentlemen,' the governor said when they had reached the privacy of his chambers, "'this is a serious matter, and no time must be lost in dealing with it. Nevertheless, I want you, Mr. Vanderventer, to tell your story of the thing to me and to the radio system of the United States Secret Service. The President himself will be listening, as will the chief executives of most of the states. Hold nothing back, as the fate of our people is at stake." So Van faced the microphone and related the history of his work in the little laboratory in the Romapo Mountains. He told of his interest in the Earth's satellite, and of his first unsuccessful experiments with ultra-telescopes in the endeavor to explore its surface close at hand, of the failure of a spaceship he had built, of the final discovery of the ray, by means of which it was possible to transport solid objects from the one body to the other. He told of the discovery of man-made relics and of fossils. He told of the diamonds, and of the attack by Dan Kelly, which had resulted in the spreading of the seed of the deadly moonweed. He even related the incident of the traffic policeman, at which the governor smiled. "'That has been reported,' he said, "'and you need have no fear on that score. The charges will be dropped. I now ask that you give us your opinion as to the best method of combating this new enemy. Have you any ideas?' "'I have not, sir,' Van replied gloomily, "'though I believe it can be done only from the air. Possibly bombing or a gas of some sort, I don't know. It will take time, Mr. Governor." "'Yes, and meanwhile the thing is overwhelming us at what rate?' "'As nearly as I can estimate it, the growth is moving with a speed of four or five miles an hour. By morning you can expect it will have traveled forty or fifty miles in all directions? I'm afraid so.' A sharp buzz from the instrument on the Governor's desk interrupted them. "'The President,' he whispered. That is enough, Governor," came the husky tones of President Alfred's voice. I shall communicate with Secretary Makeley at once. All available Army bombing planes will be rushed to the scene. You, sir, will mobilize the militia, as will the governors of the other states. Meanwhile, this young scientist is to report to the Bureau of Scientific Research in Washington tonight. Have him bring a supply of these seeds with him." That was all. Governor Perkins offered no comment but merely rose from his seat to indicate that the discussion was ended. A solemn silence reigned in the room. "'Let's go!' exclaimed Bill Peterson suddenly, unawed by the presence of the governor. "'My ship's waiting, and we can stop off for a couple of those pods and still make Washington in two hours. Come on!' Governor Perkins smiled. "'Good luck, boys,' he said, as they were ushered from the room. "'My car will return you to the airport. And remember—' The country will be watching you now and expecting much from you. Goodbye." They were to recall his words in the dark days ahead. Before they had reached Newburgh they saw a dull red glow in the skies that told them the news broadcast to which they had been listening had not exaggerated. The red growth was luminous in darkness. Off there to the southwest it was as if a vast forest fire were lighting the heavens. 
No wonder the panics and rioting were getting out of control of the police. Coming up over Bear Mountain, they caught their first glimpse of the sea of fire that was the Red Death by night. Like a vast bed of glowing embers, it covered the countryside, extending eastward to Haverstraw, where it was temporarily halted by the broad Hudson. It was a shimmering, undulating mass of living, luminous things, eating their horrible way through all organic matter that stood in their path. Writhing, squirming, all-absorbing monsters that sent out an advance guard of independent snake-like tendrils to capture and hold for the lagging mother-plants whatever of livestock and humanity they were able to find. "'Think they'll get over the river, Van?' Bart asked. "'Sure they will. Every fugitive who had a narrow escape after being in contact with these things is a potential carrier of the seed. I found several of them sticking to my clothing after we got away. I picked a couple off your coat, but didn't tell you. Lord, what did you do with them? Put them in the ash receiver in my car, like a fool? Wouldn't have to go down for more if I'd kept them. Well, it can't be helped now. We'll have a job getting some down there now, too. I'll say so. Van lapsed into gloomy silence. They were over the landing field above Tompkins Cove, and Bill turned on the siren, whose raucous shriek operated the mechanism of the floodlight switches by sound vibrations. The field sprang into instant illumination, and they circled at once before swooping to a landing. They were but a mile from the advancing terror. The field was deserted, and the three men started off immediately in the direction of the oncoming weed. "'We'll have to make it snappy,' Van grunted. We've got about twelve minutes to get the pods and get back to the ship. The damn things will be here by that time. They scrambled over fences and pushed through thickets. The lighted windows of a deserted farmhouse were directly ahead, and they ran through the open gate and across the fields. Ever the glow of the weed grew brighter. A terrified horse galloped wildly past them and crashed into the fence, whinnying piteously as it went down with a broken leg they could see the red rim of the advancing horror just beyond the road. One of the detached tendrils slithered past, each glowing coil distinctly visible. "'Lucky the things can't see,' Bart shuddered. "'Yeah,' said Van. "'Have to dodge him to get in close enough to one of the plants. Keep your eyes peeled now, you fellows, in case one of us gets caught.' A terrific explosion rocked the ground. They had paid no heed to the roaring of motors overhead. The bombers were on the job. Shooting skyward, a column of flame not a hundred yards from them showed where the high explosive had landed in the red mass. Then slimy wriggling things rained all about them, fragments of the red weed that still squirmed and crawled and clung. Bill Peterson yelled and clutched at his neck where one of the things had taken hold. Another warning whistle of a falling bomb crash, more of the horror raining down and splattering as it fell. Whistle, crash, a huge blob of quivering, luminous jelly fell before them, a portion of one of the mother plants. Crash, crash. Run, Van shouted. Run for the plane. We'll never make it now. Damn those bombers anyway. All along the advancing front, the bombs were bursting, shattering the air with their detonations and scattering the glowing red stems and tendrils in all directions. The din was appalling, and the increasing brightness of the crimson glow added to the horror of the situation. Stumbling and cursing, they ran for the plane. 
Fools! Fools! Bill was shouting. Can't they see the field and the plain? Why in the devil are they dropping them so near? Then Bart was down, clawing at a three-foot length of red tendril that had fallen on him and borne him to the earth. Bart! Bart! Van turned back and was tearing at the thing with fingers that were slippery with the sap that oozed from its torn skin. Monstrous earthworms, cut them apart and each portion lived on, took on new vigor. And these vile things could sting like a jellyfish. Where each sucker touched the skin, a burning sore remained. Bill helped them break away from the thing, and all three fought on toward the lights of the landing field. Only a short way off now. It seemed they would never reach it. The bombers were dropping their missiles with unceasing regularity, and the Red Death only spread the faster. When they scrambled into the cabin of the plane, the red wall of creeping horror was almost upon them. Advancing speedily out from the red-lit darkness, it seemed to halt momentarily, when it emerged into the brilliance of the great arc-lights which illuminated the field. Then, more slowly and with seemingly purposeful deliberation, the wriggling feelers reached out from the mass and bore down upon them. Bill slammed the door and latched it, then fumbled frantically with the starter switch. A most welcome sound was the answering roar of the motor. The pilot yanked his ship into the air, taking off with the wind rather than running the risk of remaining on the ground long enough to taxi around and head into it. The plane acted like a frightened bird as Bill struggled with the controls, darting this way and that, and once missing a crash by inches as the tail was lifted by the treacherous ground wind. Then they were clear, and slowly gained altitude in a steep climb. Phew! Van exclaimed, mopping his red-splattered forehead with his handkerchief. That was a narrow squeak, boys, and we haven't got the seeds yet, unless we can find a few in our clothing. Who said so? Bart gloated. Look at this. He opened his clenched fist and disclosed one of the pods, unbroken and gleaming horribly scarlet in the dim light of the cabin. Bill heaved a sigh of relief as he banked the ship and swung around toward the south. He had dreaded another landing near the sea of moonweed. Van chortled over their good fortune as he examined the mysterious pod. One good thing the bombers had done, anyway. Blew one of these things into his friend's hands. Bart and the young pilot found themselves very much out of the picture when they reported with Van at the research building in Washington. The government had no use for them in this emergency. It was the scientist they wanted and he was immediately rushed into conference with the heads of the Bureau. His two friends were left to shift for themselves, and they joined the crowds in the street. The name of Carl Vanderventer was on everyone's tongue. Cursing and reviling him they were, for the hare-brained experiment which had been the cause of the terrible disaster. Fools! Bart seethed with rage and nearly came to blows with a number of vociferous agitators who were advocating a necktie party. Why hadn't the officials published the entire story as Van told it over the Secret Service radio? There was no mention of Dan Kelly in the broadcast news, nor of the fact that the police were searching for him in every city and town in the country. Another instance of the results of secrecy in governmental activities. "'We'd better find ourselves a room and turn in,' Bart growled. "'Let's get out of this mob before I slam somebody.' Bill Peterson was only too willing." He was suddenly very tired. In the Willard Hotel they were assigned to an excellent room, 
and Bart insisted on switching on the broadcasts and listening to the news. Far into the night he sat by the loudspeaker, or paced the floor as an exceptionally calamitous happening was reported. But Bill slept through it all. The army bombers had been recalled. Their efforts had worked more harm than good. The invincible moonweed had now crossed the Hudson River at Nyack and Piermont. Terrytown was overrun, and many of the inhabitants had lost their lives, either in the maws of the insatiable monsters, or in the panics and rioting that accompanied the evacuation of the town. New Jersey was covered as far south as New Brunswick, and west to Phillipsburg and Belvedere. At much chunk, the contents of twenty oil tanks had been diverted to the Delaware River, and the floating oil film was proving at least a temporary protection to a considerable portion of the state of Pennsylvania. In New York State, the growth had buried hill and valley, town and village, as far as Monticello, and, along the Hudson, extended as far north as Kingston. At Poughkeepsie, on the opposite side of the river, frantic householders had armed themselves with rifles and shotguns, and were killing off all refugees who attempted to land from boats at that point. But the militia was on guard at the bridges, assuring safe crossing to the thousands who fled the Red Death over these routes. There was no keeping the seed of the moonweed from finding its way east. At some points, fire had been used with considerable success as a barrier, hundreds of acres of forest lands being destroyed in the endeavor to stem the crimson tide. But after the ashes were cool, germination would recur, and the weed would continue on its triumphant way. Acid sprays and poison gas of various kinds had been tried without appreciable effect. The casualty estimates already ran into the tens of thousands. Rumor had it that nearly one hundred thousand had lost their lives in the city of Newark alone. There was no way in which the figures could be checked while everything was in a state of confusion. Communication lines were broken, roads blocked, gas and electric supply systems paralyzed, and the railroads helpless. Trains could not be driven through the glutinous, wriggling mass that piled high on the tracks. Only the radio and the airlines were operative in the stricken area, and even these were of little value to the unfortunates who, in many cases, were surrounded and cut off from all hope of succor. At four in the morning, with aching heart and reeling brain, Bart threw himself on the bed without undressing and fell into the troubled sleep of exhaustion and despair. End of section 11